Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Each week, we bring you the Dewing Grain market report, giving you up-to-date information and insider advice, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues while sampling a beer, Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's market report. Welcome to the market report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market report for week commencing 24th of August 2020, our 100th edition. And uh, if there's any new listeners coming on board, because we were on the Farmers Weekly podcast this week, and I think they gave it a good plug. We were on at the very end just to brighten things up. And... uh, yeah, if you haven't heard us before, there's a hundred episodes you can get to sleep to several nights on the trot if you wish. But uh, for those of you who are regular listeners, thanks for persevering. Occasionally there's some gems in there and uh, the rest of the time you probably just dropped off. Anyway, let's talk about the market. It is um, 24th of August. You kind of should be getting near the end of wrapping things up in East Anglia. And that's we were at that place at least a week ago, but nothing's happened since. It's rained and the spring malting barley that's left out there, because everything else pretty well was cut in terms of cereals, was incredibly dry, and then it got this amazing kind of sauna-type treatment, warm, misty weather. It's a bit like putting the stuff in a steep, so everyone's very nervous about um, germination on the barleys. Now, we had our store members started cutting yesterday evening, which is Thursday evening, at 18, 19% moisture. And if ever there's a moment to be glad to be a central store member, it's right now. You haven't got to wait until the next storm cloud comes through. You can get on with it, and the difference in price between 15% moisture and 19% moisture is £2 a tonne. So there is no reason to delay, and you may well be preserving a premium that is quite significant. So good one for central store members and it's one of those moments where you know it looks like you're never going to use the dryer all harvest then all of a sudden in comes really wet grain so we expect to see the bulk of our spring barley from store members cut in the next 24 to 48 hours before the next set of rain comes through the county those of you who don't own those facilities and who are waiting for it to be 15 percent good luck with that one i think that potentially this barley is getting on the edge of uh, germination problems I think there will be some that will be rejected for that. And on that note, I will say something. There is one very large company making lots of noise about there being germination problems. And I don't think up to this point there has been. I personally believe that. But, you know, one has to ask the question sometimes, is there a relationship between extremely high-priced contracts and germination failings? Because if commercially someone gains a massive benefit from it, I think that's where sometimes the grain trade earns its worst reputation. And, And as an individual trader, you know, I don't think you should sell your soul to the devil on that one. We as a business, if we have a high price contract, and I think we're unique in this, and I'm proud of this, if we have a high price contract pre-harvest and the barley fails, and we've had some winter barleys fail on nitrogen and it ended up as feed, we will pay the difference between what we buy in the malting barley at and the sale price that the farmer made. So we have a farmer who had failed feed barley. If I adopted the method of certain individuals, I'd be making myself a good 40 50 pound margin what we've done is we've added the premium into the feed barley price so they've ended up with 150 odd pounds a ton for feed barley and i think if you're bright enough to understand what i'm saying here there is if there was var 
on malting barley deliveries. If the farmers were strong enough as a unit to actually stand up against this, then it would be fair. But I'm afraid you've let it go. Certain people are getting very dominant in this industry, and I'm afraid these moments of opportunism are going to continue to happen, and lots of money will go straight out of the farmer's pocket. I won't win lots of friends for that particular comment. Anyway, moving on from my ranting... Yeah, we will finish spring barley shortly. Some of it's going to go in the feed bin at the very tail end, but largely the yields were down. People have been talking them 25% down. I think they possibly were more than that down, but um, we've got enough for the contracts that we're supposed to supply. My estimation of quality on barley was, I reckon there was about 35%, 30 to 35% under 165, 40% 166 to 185, and 25% 186 upwards i might be being slightly generous on the lower nitrogen stuff so it's largely this part of the world expects to get low nitrogen so we've got a bigger percentage failing than we're used to so it's a bit like living in another county which obviously is very disappointing so um, moving on we shall go on to prices for malting barley i would say spring malting barley prices if you've got under 165 nitrogen it's going to be in the region of 145x for immediate movement somewhere where you can get it dry it save it keep the germ maybe a smidgen more than that if it's really low nitrogen but I, that's about where it's at there aren't that many people moving it to be fair and if you've got a 166 to 185, it's probably in the region of 135x, 30 to 35x, which is still a 10, 15 pound premium over feed barley. It's still also a discount to feed wheat, but that's just the dynamic of the marketplace because of COVID, because of the lack of beer drinking, because of the massive carryover of stocks. You know, these big boys have got that tonnage there to use as well as what you're producing now. Feed barley probably perking up a bit now the harvest pressure's over there will be some spring feed barley coming in which may just alleviate some of the people really trying to buy some barley for their boats so we would value that roughly 122 123x for september something in that region but that's become a little bit quiet as all of the spare winter barley was hoovered up and has gone moving on to feed wheat feed wheat value for september is the same as the feed wheat value for november there has been a lack of farmer selling and we at point of recording we would pay for september 160x farm that's jumping up and down a bit as there are people a little bit desperate to get their hands on wheat and farmers as we've mentioned before are not selling it it's the same bid for november so let's be clear if you are you know what you're waiting for if you've got nothing else to do with your time then um, let's just flog it my view, long-term view, and this is, this is the whole point of this podcast, is we actually have a, an opinion and stick our neck out and then everyone can tell us we're wrong, but we're still waiting for that moment. I think 160 X farm for September feed week will be the best price of the year. I think by the time we get through to ne- you know, next April, May, June, once you've taken into account the cost of storing it, the cost of uh, not having the money in the bank, etc., I think you will be worse off in pounds per tonne. You might be being paid 160 still, but that's hardly a victory. So I think the market, in the end, will be oversupplied by imported grain, which will have to come in because the UK farmer's holding off on selling it. And there are already cargoes of Danish wheat coming into the country, and there's already, as we've mentioned before, corn being imported or maize being imported for usage in the UK as well that's going to undermine your price plus we've got the pleasures of Brexit which one side thinks that the currency will drop dramatically and suddenly we'll have a major benefit from that but then where are we going to export it to and will there be tariffs and therefore it will nullify any benefit 
Another side thinks, well, you know, because we're relatively tight, there perhaps would be some restrictions on stuff coming in. Well, let me assure you, the UK government desperately needs low food prices, so there won't be tariffs on stuff coming in, and I'm not a politician. Finally, on cereal prices, what have we got? Oilseed rape, 325x. I'm just putting a price there because nobody's selling it whatsoever. If you actually phoned us up and said, here, I've got some rape, then we'll do some work and try and give you a price. But there is nil involvement. The potential of that price is quite explosive in a sense. We're short in the UK, and with the incredible weakness of the dollar... Is it going to stay that week all the way through? If the dollar recovers at some point, we believe that oilseed markets in Europe will go up in price. So there is potentially a significant rally in oilseed prices. But at this precise second, that's the price. You know, that's where we're at. What else is there to say? No, I think that's about it. We'd love Harvest to be finished by the time we have our next podcast. And I think we'll be there or thereabouts in this county. And I hope you've enjoyed the last uh, 99 episodes. And I hope that our favourite Earl episode today is one that you also enjoy. So thank you for listening and thanks for persevering as well. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. The Mutimer family have been rearing pigs outdoors since 1973 and in recent years have developed Swannington Farm to Fork into a multi-award winning rural business. The animals are reared to the highest welfare standards and are fully recognised by schemes such as the RSPCA's Freedom Food Scheme and the Red Tractor Assurance Scheme. The pigs thrive on grass-covered sandy soil while sheep and beef cattle graze the beautifully environmentally sensitive meadows of Swannington Beck. Swannington Farm to Fork is a multi-award winning wholesale butchers and farm shop who specialise in supplying fully traceable meat with the emphasis on quality, taste, animal welfare and food miles to pubs, restaurants, hotels, cafes, colleges, hospitals and the public. In September 2019, Farm to Fork won the Eat Norfolk Food and Drink Field to Fork Award with the judges being impressed with the sustainability of Swannington Farm to Fork and explaining how the business is producing an outstanding product and has a vision for the future with very impressive environmental credentials, as well as having good links to the community. For more information, visit their website, swanningtonfarmtofork.co.uk. And now it's time for Farm Chat. Today we are celebrating our very special 100th edition of the Doing Grain podcast and we have a very special guest. We've got the Earl of Leicester who has kindly agreed to come on our podcast. So good afternoon, Tom. Andrew, hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. It's unusual to um, be told to park between the lions when you go to a farm visit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those lions were uh, a Victorian addition to this house, which is Georgian. So this house is uh, mid-18th century. And uh, the lions and all the terraces were added by the second Earl in 1860s. Okay. Uh, I'm now the eighth. Okay. So... um Obviously, there was no actual people in Lycra sitting on the lions today. Do you actually, like, take a pot shot at them with, you know, what do you do when there's someone starts abusing your lions? Uh, no, I don't do anything. <laughs> they, they, I think they would take a lot of stick, you know. People. <laughs> I've only seen friends of mine climbing on top of them and being sitting on top of them, uh, but others, lots of people like to... There's a lot out there today. So we're recording this a couple of weeks in advance. So if we make reference to harvest or anything, it will be slightly out of time. But, you know, by then the harvest could have been a complete disaster or a wonderful experience. So we'll assume it's going to be the latter and be cheerful. Let's hope, yeah. 
<laughs> Although it hasn't started that well. Anyway, you've got an awfully large number of people outside because it's going to be the hottest day of the year today, tomorrow, isn't it? Is it? Yes. Gosh, I haven't really followed the... Uh, I'm feeling it because I'm on hot days. I normally work in shorts. Uh, I've got a sleeveless shirt on or a sh- short sleeve shirt. And uh, I must admit, I'd prefer to be in shorts today. Yeah, I hope you don't mind my Bermuda shorts. And st- oh, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't even <laughs> notice them, actually. You, uh, as a farming unit, we're, we're trading a lot with you, as you know. And where we first came to meet you was when you, as a business, bought the old Dalgetty or the old Siemens site at Eggmere. And I was asked to come along and try and kind of, you know, utilise the space you weren't using. And it was a little bit run down. Very. And uh, you had to chuck some money at it. But consequently, since then, you've got now a, a very modern, up-to-date facility machine, haven't you? Yes, and that came about because... Uh, we, back in the day, in my father's time, uh, we had a number of family farming partnerships. And um, the Holcomb Estate is, broadly speaking, 25,000 acres. But they were dotted around the furthest extremities. And each of those farms, like so many other typical Norfolk farms, of, sort of well, West Norfolk farms, let's say, of sort of 750 to 1,000 acres, all had their own farm yards and then farm storage. And, of course, everybody had a, a 10-tonne an hour dresser and dryer. Absolutely. And uh, we were buying combines that were doing 40 tonnes an hour. I mean, I don't know what they're doing now, 50 tonne an hour probably. And the rest, I've got no um, idea. I just know it comes in too quickly. Yeah, it comes in quickly. And now, so this uh, facility we have uh, does 80 tonnes an hour. Right. And it allows us to take in neighbouring farmers' grain as well. Yeah, I mean, and there's flat store tipping and there's more than one pit on 80 tonne an hour. There's lots around the site. But the luxury of it is when I first looked around, it was a bit full up with dust and things. But there was a proper malting barley screening units that had been there for a proper, you know, merchanting business. And getting those beasts back into action was was fantastic because it's the, you know, the Rolls Royce of machinery available to you for your product and many of the tenants and many of the people from surrounding farms. Yeah. I mean, we've managed since to fill it up every year, so it seems to be in the right place. Yeah, it's transformed our, uh, our harvesting operation. Hmm. And, 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 and the, the quality of the grain that, you know, that, we, you know, that we can send out. Well, on, on the back of that, I mean, because today's conversation, I know from having heard you speak a couple of times, you have a passion about the dynamic of how farming should change. And, and we're going to talk about some of that in a moment. But just to kind of finish off on the store, the knock-on effect of having the right kit is you've been able to achieve some long-standing relationships with end users, haven't we? We've got the yeah. famous one with Adnams, our favourite one. Yeah, that's right. And we now provide Adnams with half of their malting barley. And because we have storage mm-hmm. up at Eggmere, Adnams start taking our barley from, well, you would probably know better than me, but I think it's sort of January yeah. through to that's, July. That's right, yeah. And then, of course, there's a the malting process and the brewing process about three months. So um, I always advocate drinking Adnams. Uh, I always think it tastes a wee bit better from about sort of <laughs> September, October onwards through the... <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, lots of yours is specifically used for um, their gin and their vodka and because it's the distilling variety that we grow, but they use the surplus for the beer. But you're mm-hmm. right. But having that much association, they obviously like the process. The Holcomb brand definitely fits with or resonates with them and, and they managed to plaster their name across one old aircraft hangar, which is one of our stores, you know, to say it's the home of their barley. Yeah. When they did that, I thought that was a great moment for a longevity of a contract, by the way. Yes, of course. And um, we have an excellent relationship with Adnams. But, uh, you know, it's based really more on values rather than commercial gain for for Mm. one or other. Although I find the best business relationships are where you're not trying to lift the leg of your partner and he's not trying to lift your leg. 
So, you know, we share the same values and um, sort of business ethics. And uh, it's a great relationship, a relationship we're both very proud of. Yeah, absolutely. Just one technicality, where they've written Adams is actually the wheat shed, isn't it? I, I know that. I know that. It's your wheat futures store. But, but uh, yeah, the, other, one, the other sheds are hidden behind trees. So, so uh, If only a purist didn't stick their head in the door and realise. No, but it, it's, um, it's a fabulous advert and a good sign. It's going to be there for a long time. Yeah, and we've, ever since we took back the Victoria Hotel back in 2001, we've served Adams beer behind the bar yep. and we tend to buy all our wine through them as well. And, of course, their gins, which have been, um, you know, won. Yeah, awards, fabulous awards, won, absolutely, won from when your barley started going in. So that's it. <laughs> so traditional farming is obviously your history. The first Earl of Leicester, infamous in the whole of agricultural revolution. Not infamous, famous. Yeah, famous indeed. So his role, just briefly, just give the outline of what he added to the party. Well, Cook of Norfolk, um, you know, he was one of the key players in the agricultural revolution, along with Turnip Townsend and Jethro Tull, Josiah Webb, all those sort of people. Mm -hmm. I think if the truth be told, the reason he's in the history books is he was a very good Mm self-publicist. But what he did do, he was unusual in, just as we are, almost today in in that landowners didn't farm their land tenants did Mm. but he really enjoyed his farming and uh, he would then and his agent uh, would give rent rebates to farmers who marred their land who drained it who improved it effectively so he took a great interest in it and he he went for multi-generational contracts with the tenants as well so they'd invest in it Yes, yes. So that uh, and, and very detailed. The tenancy agreements that he in Francis Blakey, his agent mm. uh, or steward, as they were known then, gave out far more detailed than the ones we give out now. Mm. And you know, I'm sort of thinking actually, if if we want to make farming in this country sustainable, you know, there's all this talk about a hundred harvests left or sixty harvests or whatever. You know, yes, that may be the case in some of the sort of worst, most. Uh, aggressive farmers but certainly not in our case I and mean, we're building soil fertility into our soil well, let's let's get on to the 100 harvest left you know that the principle of that is the land is simply being taken from not added to it's being unprotected for lots of parts of the year bare this is the subject that you are strongest on yeah i mean well i'm, I'm not strongest on it it's just it's just one of my interests and um i sit here you know in my office with some lovely italian old master paintings and such like my degree at university was history of art and my interest in farming really stems from when I was a young boy and I sort of pushed grain into the silo or whatever mm. and then when I was old enough I was allowed to drive a tractor and uh, you know I remember sort of you know learning how to drive a tractor by sort of doing, we- doing wheelies with a cultivator <laughs> on the back and seeing how fast you could go yeah. or far you could go and um, then more latterly, you know, an interest, an unhealthy interest in high horsepower tractors. Yep. And I've always, always read the farming press, even after I left university. I went to uh, Germany with the army and I've always maintained my interest in the farming press. And it absolutely amazes me. Here we are, 2020. I think it was only in about 2016 that the farming press, the mainstream farming press, mm. the sort of stuff I was reading, started talking about soil health. Well, this is, you know, the whole subject of that. I mean, there's the book that you, you've quoted, and I've I only got a copy of it 18 hours ago, so I haven't read the thing cover to cover, but I've kind of watched a Facebook... Pres- uh, Gabe Brown wrote this book, and uh, I've picked up the gist of it, and certainly it, it appeals in many ways. You can see absolute sense in lots of the things he's saying and the five principles that he has. I mean, adapting what he's doing in central North America, which is a kind of 
very cold in the winter and then a period of extreme growth etc in the summer to a maritime climate it strikes me as slightly more challenging so yes of course it presents challenges and he has a nice he has i don't know four four months of snow on the ground so that kills off a load of bugs that you don't want we don't but I've given it to all my farms team to read, or the, all the managers have read it. Uh, tractor drivers are now working their way through it. You know, it's a good read. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's, it tells a bit of his life story about how things you know, nearly went tits up for him at the beginning. And uh, we are just taking it gently. So I have got friends of mine around here who have decided, right, you know, let's see, there's an intergenerational change. And a uh, young son comes back and uh, says, right, I want to go organic or I want to do rewilding or whatever. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, you know, the farm team has suddenly got to change from one to the other. That's uh, a bit sudden, isn't it? Which That's is very sudden yeah. and, and presents huge problems and can demoralise people. And I think the same sort of thing happened back in the day when uh, Minimum Till originally came in and yeah. people tried it and, oh, I don't like the look of that. Yeah. And, um, you know, didn't work for me. So we're taking it gently. And so one of the targets uh, or aspirations i've given the farms team is by 2030 we'll farm without sides yeah pesticides insecticides etc yeah. and that and without artificial nitrogen and that's effectively what gabe brown is doing now yeah. but we're taking it you know we got 10 11 years to, to do that because i gave that advice out last year mm. and you know it might have filled james beamish my and paul hoberson even mm. you know minds with a bit of horror mm. but actually taking it gently and it's working. So Harry Barnett, who runs our potato joint venture exit company with uh, Emerald Crops in Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Harry, for the last two potato crops and, and this current one, each year he's reduced the amount of artificial nitrogen by 10%. Huge cost saving. Well, yep. it's, it is a huge no, cost huge saving over, over 500 hectares. And the crops, doing it gently, the crops still look wonderful. The yields were perfect. You know, so we're taking it gently. Is fighting against the kind of tide of the way it works at the moment. Big, I mean, big yield, big synthetic investment in chemicals to spray all over the crop. Lots of artificial fertilizer seems to be what the major companies in this industry want to push. It makes them money, and we all got to feed the world. Is the point that Gabe Brown, you know? Yeah. In fact, we are making enough food to feed the world. It's just we waste loads of it, don't we? Yeah. But the production methods is in every cycle, be it a cattle lot with. 200,000 cattle in it or whatever is take 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 and it's Mm. artificial product going through and the actual quality of the product the food has less nutrients etc yeah so there's a very strong argument which is totally logical the problem that i see is the general public will buy the cheapest food and the government don't have a strategy that actually goes along with appreciating the dynamic of, of what you're saying yeah, yeah, I, I don't know how that's going to be, I don't know how that's going to, to play out, but I suppose if you look at this 60 harvests left, this country and lot, lot of sort of conventional farming countries have reached this yield plateau, and the only way to keep it at the level it is, is to throw more nitrogen at it. Yeah, which, which in the end is just going to waste the soil yeah. further, isn't it? And, and you know, all the nitrogen you put on your soil, 50% of it disappears into the river courses. Mm. And um, Dieter Helm, who's a professor of economics at Oxford University, in his book, Green and Pleasant Land, mm. he makes the sort of simple analysis between the common agricultural policy subsidy of 3.2 billion mm. equals the amount the water companies have to spend 
<laughs> cleaning up the, the nitrates and phosphates out of the rivers so we can drink it. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, there's actually much greater costs involved. But we're finding that, so for instance, two years ago, we started this regenerative agricultural exercises six, seven years ago. And two years ago, we had that really nasty long drought in the summer. Mm-hmm. And I think most, well, you tell me, I think people's yields were down 25 to 30%. Yep. And we were down about 15%. Mm. And it was the, or so I'm told, you know, I wasn't... Feel, no, it feels a bit like that this summer, just for the record. Yes, yes, I fear. But <clears throat> what happened is because we had more, we'd, we'd sort of, the, what we'd been doing with our six-course rotation, with our cover crops, mm. is that we had built up more organic matter in our soil. Mm. Not enough, and we need to keep doing more and more. And, uh, you know, bringing sheep back onto the land uh, uh, to feed on the cover crops. This is, you know, we're not doing anything clever. We're just doing what Cook of Norfolk and others did years ago. Yeah, it's just, you know, if you've got... Uh, livestock's in, really important in that process, yeah. the whole thing of that. But if you're just selling livestock, that's fine. But if you're maintaining the Adams contract, for example, that stuff needs to be the right nitrogen. It needs to be the right clean, very clean, very... No. Yeah you've got a store that can clean it up so maybe we're going to go back to and you touched on a point where each farm had a 10 ton an hour screening unit for the last 40 years no one's invested in screening units amazing no they just sprayed everything and there's no bug you know in comes the grain and the merchant sorts it out the farmer moans about the claims for whatever they take Mm -hmm. out but the reality there's been no investment in stuff like screening units if we do lose pesticides or herbicides Possibly, you know, I, I, was, I was playing football in Fakenham last night. And I think you used to play there, actually. I, I used to, yeah. yeah. I actually went, that's the first get-together we had last night. Yeah. And there's a field of barley right beside where we play. And there's about 50% fat hen in there. Yeah. And that's going to, if you don't get that stuff out mm. within two days, it will stink and it will have gone off. And the fear for me, as someone who's trying to say, here you go, Adam, here's some lovely barley. The fear is that... People won't have enough capacity to clean the stuff up quick enough. We will have, you will have, but lots of other people won't. I think that could create a revolution in perhaps Mm. investment in storage. Yeah. Well, interestingly, actually, Gabe Brown, in his book, he said, actually, I do use herbicides or I'm not organic Mm. and I never will be because now and again, I do need to use a herbicide. Um, Yeah. He also said, I'm allergic to paperwork. Which is, <laughs> I can understand that. We have, we've uh, registered one of our stores as organic, and yeah, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just lots of extra ticking. But let's look at his five principles. You know, I don't know if you can reel them off by heart, can you? You know what? I, I had my book open and it's just closed. It's, what, it, it's um, it, diversity, so always having diversity of, of plants within the, the soils as often as you can. Yeah, limited disturbance. Uh, limited disturbance, which is your um, minimum till or, or indeed no till. and Armour. Uh, uh, yeah, armour, covering the soil. Yeah, um, I, I wrote these down, so I'm saying did, I, really, I really know them by heart. Keeping but... living roots in the soil, so you yeah. know, the benefits so, that, that... So what does that mean? That actually means just continuously putting something fresh in or allowing something to regenerate and you kind of farm around it? Both. Okay. Yeah, so um, for instance, we've taken over some land back from Great Farm Burnham Norton on the eastern mm-hmm. western edge of the estate which is where i learned my farming as a young mm-hmm. boy so we took it back it had been in a pretty heavy rotation or quite close rotation of potatoes and things like that and it needs some work doing to it to mm-hmm. sort of get it up to the standard what we would like it to be so for instance we got uh, one field of, of cover crops in there with sort of about five different plants phacelia buckwheat clover mm-hmm. a bit of oilseed radish not um and that james beamish was telling me we could either have it in there for six months 
actually, we think we can keep it in there for 18 months. Okay. And we'll turn sheep onto it twice. Okay. But the point is, is and I went to, um, well, it was last year now, because, of course, all the agricultural shows are being cancelled this year. Uh, last year, I went for the first time to Groundswell, um, which is a sort of regenerative farming show down in Hertfordshire. And there was this guy called Jay Fuhrer from the U.S. Department of Agriculture from Bismarck, North Dakota, same place as Gabe Brown. They know each other. And he was talking about no-till. And I, uh, you know, I put my hand up and said, is min-till a swear word in your vocabulary? And he said, no, it's not. And I'm glad that you're doing min-till, but, you know, I'd like you to go further. Okay. You know, we'll see. We're taking it really gently, and I'm, I'm pleased with the progress we're making, and we're not making little steps, I think, is the important thing at this juncture. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're going to be a pioneer because the climate is different, isn't it? You can't... Well, in Gabe Brown's case, he has six months of fabulous growth and several months of cold, mm. which means that he has a period where he isn't going to have to worry about continuous growth of things, whereas in, in our ever-warming climate, stuff keeps growing now, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, uh, but he showed a really interesting uh, slide from, you know, from an old farming book. And it talked about uh, a grassland. And the, the, basically, the, uh, if you had, he sh- there was three types of grass next to each other on this picture. And one was, let's say, two foot high mm-hmm. and hadn't been grazed for 90 days or something. And below soil, its roots were two foot long. Okay. And then it went down to another to, the, to a little bit, which had been nibbled by sheep for sort of you know forever, and was maybe two inches, two or three inches high, and underneath was only two or three inches worth of roots. Really. And so you know, because when the sheep are nibbling the the, the grass, it's, the uh, do much to the roots are trying to sort of you know provide more yeah. food or, or energy to the grasses to to make them grow. And of course, those the root action is really important, and you know getting effective all this all this green cover is doing is it's it's taking nitrogen out of the atmosphere yeah i mean i you know everybody else who's done a i think i'm very honored that i'm a hundredth podcast and i'm the least knowledgeable well i've my i've even got my knowledge from a little a few books and a little you, knowledge you did, is a dangerous thing you did hint at not being a bit disappointed you weren't asked earlier didn't you okay. yes yeah yeah well slightly I, wounded <laughs> I, I get that i get a lot of celebrities who want yes to well it's rather like my favorite platonic girlfriend she was pretty wounded that she wasn't asked to be uh, godmother to my f- uh, first two daughters but then i'd saved her for my son oh, and she got it <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's just taking the nitrogen out of the atmosphere and of course the air we breathe is 80 percent nitrogen or 79 percent nitrogen and it's and it's fixing it in the plants which themselves are carbon yeah. uh, and then you've got free nitrogen for your for your following crops you know, there's a lot more science to it. And, and the great thing is with having someone like Paul Hoverson as a farms director and, and James Beamish, but Paul, whilst I'm sort of going on about Gay Brown and regenerative agriculture, Paul is saying, yes, that's all good, but we must have the science too. Hmm. So we're doing a lot of, putting a lot of investment into science. And, uh, His, well, the work he's doing on, on data management and understanding every minute detail is... Um, yes, and, and, and is at Dominic, we've got, who works for Saul, yeah. Rain and myself for the... Um, at Lexham, yeah, uh, for the salmons, yeah. um, you know, going around, you know, the science behind the number of seeds per hectare and or per meter or whatever it is. Oh, listen, they had a meeting I, this morning before us, and uh, you know, Paul and James's eyes were pretty pretty burned out by the time we got in the room. Yeah, and, and then how many tillers and at what time of year and this and that, and uh, you know, it's it's pretty highbrow stuff that, but I found it fascinating that you know this is this you know by doing all this you can. 
Well, you get bigger, better yields. You, you can save money on your seed costs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, and it's about long-term strategy, isn't it? I mean, as I said, you can't just go one day, you know, synthetic fertilizers and so on to you know a full Gabe Brown farming system in a year. But the gradual, the merging of the two. And in your case, you're going to be discovering whether it actually can work in a, you know, cereal producing context. Well, exactly. And indeed, that is what uh, James was explaining to me, because I didn't know, that actually, is it wheat or barley, that you need to be adding nitrogen at certain crucial points during its its, its yeah, growth. It, it, it took, he's talking about, this another one of our contracts. We have a, or you have a contract, we arranged with um, David Wright. This episode's called Our Favourite Earl, that's you. And our favourite miller is David Wright. And okay. every time I give him a plug, I get a free bag of flour. So, I, you know, <laughs> every week. <laughs> but no, David's got a picture of actually Paul Hoverson on the back of the bag. And he's selling bespoke Norfolk flour for various bakeries around the county who, who want to identify where the stuff is grown. It's grown at Holcomb Estate. It's a picture of Paul's ugly mug on the side of the bag, and it's going out specifically to patisseries and, and various guys who are producing very top-quality product. It's another end user with a specific relationship, which is another thing you're, you've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the milling wheat is where you add to get the protein level correct for yeah, the Yeah, exactly. The and, you know... <sighs> You know, my wife has been forcing me to drink organic milk for about five years now. I mean, if, if she goes on a holiday for a week, I might try and buy some normal normal milk. But <laughs> is it is it pasteurised? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, we have we've had some of um, William Wales's milk from Binham, which is full and fat and creamy. And of course, we've been I've been weaned onto semi skimmed stuff now. So you so. can still you can still have raw milk skimmed. Yeah, could do, could do. But anyway, when we decided, gosh, probably twelve. 15 years ago, not to go down the organic route, mm. we reckoned that traceability and provenance mm-hmm. would be as important. And, you know, I think that the uh, divergence in price between organic and conventional isn't that great. No, it's not good enough to meet, meet the two and the things you have to sometimes do with the organic produce. Mm-hmm. That subject is the recent podcast we had with um, Murray Ferguson talks about when he first went to a farm in Eccles and it was infested with wild oats. And, you know, it really, he said every year we hand-rogued them and hand-rogued them, but we simply could not get rid of them. Only in the 1970s when Avidex came along did he get rid of them. Mm-hmm. So he said, you know, I would, I would never, he's, he's 90 this year, is this Murray, and he said, I would never go organic. He said, but amongst the hour or so conversation we had, he said that the unexpected consequences of killing aphids has been the development of another bug that comes along that's worse. Mm. And what does it kill under the ground? Yeah. And yes, we conquered the wild oat, and I'm grateful, but what damage did it do? And I'm always conscious yeah. of that. Yeah. And indeed, haven't we had um, at one of our sort of mini Holcomb now North Norfolk farming conferences mm. a couple of years ago? I, we had... Um, someone from the grain trade, and it wasn't you, I don't think, uh, talking about... Um, talking a little rubbish, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I think they, they'd just come, you know, for a bit of a drive around yeah. the continent, and they were talking that Beck's Brewers yeah. in, in Bremerhaven, or Bremen, were saying, you know, we don't want to have any of your malting barley if you've sprayed it off to kill it, ready to harvest it, which I know was... Yeah, glyphosate. Re- yeah, it was relatively commonplace, uh, you know, not too many years ago. For what it's worth, I think possibly this year... With there's a second growth in spring barley. There's a lot of fit spring barley, and there's a lot of very green second tillers have just come up. And I suspect a large slice 
of the industry is going to have to do something about that, or you're going to have an unfit crop with a fit crop, or uh, that is the problem we face. It, by the time this episode goes out, we'll know the answer to that that particular dilemma. But yeah, yeah it, there could well be people spraying off their barley this year. I think mm-hmm. on the spring barley. Yes, you know you've you've had a actually this year up in this neck of the woods. You've had a very difficult season. You had a terrible autumn. Everybody had a terrible autumn, but you had a microclimate of terribleness. You kept picking up Lincolnshire rain by the look of it. And, um, you know, getting stuff in on time, getting stuff harvested on time. Anyone in this top corner of Norfolk is going to do well to get a half-decent yield this year. So, yeah. you know, it's going to, going to be a tough year, I'm afraid. Yeah, well, and we've had, I think we've got a unheard of, a 10-day break between our winter barley and oilseed rape, of which we didn't grow that many because we had to, much because we had to sort of re-drill half of it. And then the spring barleys, of which we had to almost double the acreage. Yep, spring barley is about 10 days away. It's actually, funny enough, as I saw James this morning, so brought you up this afternoon, he said, I'm going to have a nibble at the wheat. So you're mm-hmm. actually starting your wheat harvest. So immediately after this, I'm going to go down there and stick my nose in and see what, see what it's like. Because the dynamic of what the yield is going to be up here is going to be fairly critical. We've heard some Breckland wheats come off at five tonnes a hectare, which is disastrous. Mm. But equally, we've heard some big yields in heavy land in Suffolk, which, you know, that could be promising. On the other hand, we're counted with light land at a terrible mess. So how big is the wheat crop and should I buy it or sell it is the is my focus. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so the politics behind the decisions in agriculture, the long-term strategy of what the government will do and how the general public reacts to me, is the critical issue. You can't just jump, can you, into this farming strategy if they pull away all subsidy? Well, we've certainly made this decision to do to head towards it into a more regenerative agriculture based on that being the Ultimate. what we believe to be the correct answer. Mm-hmm. I think certainly if, if um, subsidies are taken away... I, well, subsidies will be will be different. I mean, Gove himself said, you know, this is going to be much more pillar two environmental, mm-hmm. and that you know that frankly suits us because we have um, all our land that we farm ourselves in HLS. We have the National Nature Reserve. I know you interviewed Jake Fines, who's, mm. who's my director running the the NNR. So there's you know all those sort of environmental benefits that we are trying to provide, and actually. Doing it much better now. We bought a new drill, unsurprisingly, Vardastad. Um, mm-hmm. I found that uh, my farm's director is a non-exec director of uh, of that company. So, <laughs> surprisingly, yeah, I, I, I surprise, think... every single drill we have comes from them. But anyway, <laughs> it, it, it's doing. Uh, saying I've seen the the um, field margins it, and looking, they're looking really good. If you're going down that route, it is a Vardastad that you buy. It's, I don't think it's any influence of. Well, it's not just you that's doing exactly <laughs> that. So, the, the interesting thing is that they've picked a UK farmer to be on that board yeah you know, well he's, he's you know he's scandinavian too isn't he so that indeed helps. he talks that talks the lingo you're right so a food report's just been published with this um henry dimbleby who started leon restaurants yeah and a key issue in his report is cheap food yeah yeah and i that's where the the ropes pull in a different direction that's right you know any government worth its salt its primary consideration is cheap food to stop the Populist just, from rioting. Just for five years. And then they might get voted in again and they make something else up. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's always been keep food cheap because otherwise you can have riots on your hands. Yeah. Um, best, best and, of course, you know, government says that, that the food standards in this country are protected 
even if we get an agreement with America and America starts trying to flood us with chlorinated chicken, etc., they say it's the Food Standards Agency which actually decides what is safe and they have claimed that they wouldn't accept chlorinated chicken. Well, I think in his report he says it's very difficult to see any country being prepared to agree a long-term agreement with us if we stick those particular criteria in the deal. I think Mm. the reality is we're going to go through a period where there isn't going to be the time for us to delay. The government are desperate for cheap food. So we're going to have a period where, goodness knows how the government, who've actually made several positive statements in favour of farmers, are going to get over it. They're going to have to do a deal. They've just waved Mm. goodbye to Europe. They've got to do a deal with America, which Mm. is not a great place to be with with Donald, is it? No, and, and, you know, we've never had any favours in any... uh bilateral trade deals from the americans they're very hard-nosed yeah so bring back the corn laws <laughs> there's a t- an area of history i didn't study enough but of course it has been quoted a lot recently well it's very relevant to the first earl i think wasn't it i think uh, corn laws 1815 to 1846 i'm reading this in 1846 it was repealed and it, it saw to the Tory government for 20 years they wouldn't they didn't get back in power after it yeah well he was uh, our family were weeks so mm. um it definitely we aren't going to do it we're simply going to allow stuff to come in cheaply and as I say it'll be interesting to see how it plays out but there needs to be strategic planning somewhere along there someone needs to stick something in the ground so farmers can produce soil again as opposed to deplete it yeah, and have a, a sustainable agriculture. If they really want that to happen, they simply cannot tie the UK farmers' feet together and say, "I, right, you do these things, and everyone else can do whatever they yeah. like." I don't know how that's going to play out. You know, I'm pleasantly surprised to see that uh, the general public's view of farmers are viewing farmers favourably. I think by sort of seventy nine percent. And that's gone up 5% in the last, I don't know, year or two. Yeah, it's just that the jet... The but jet, but they, actually, everybody says, oh, yeah, we want to buy British. But actually, when it comes to it and you're in the supermarket shelves, you're well, quite so often buying on, on price. An aisle full of Union Jacks and the ones at the end is the cheapest meat. They'll pick it up and it says produced in Holland. So, mm. yeah, until we have clear labelling, I think labelling would give us a fighting chance. So if people do want to be discerning, they yeah. say, I want beef produced from a farm that's doing all the things that you're doing, and it's got a higher nutrient level, they'll become more aware, more educated, then it boils down to labelling. If you can stick a great big American flag on the side of any steak that comes in from America, everyone can see it's a great big American flag, and it'd be mm. like, as I've said, buying a Skoda in the 80s. You know, they're fantastic cars, but it was like, uh, you bought a Skoda. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, you're at the till and you're handing over the thing, there's a big flag on it, and everybody looks at you and sort of looks away and goes, ooh, <laughs> because they know that it's off a feedlot, being yeah. fed soya and corn yeah. and probably off a... Deep I think a lot more work is, and perhaps a bit more understanding is coming now into nutrition. I mean... Uh, Education is everything, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, I'm pleased to see the government at last trying to tackle obesity. And, of course, COVID-19's come along. And, uh, you know, a friend of mine who is in charge of the critical care unit in a certain hospital near to here, mm-hmm. running the COVID ward, said that everybody in there with COVID-19 was obese. So, you know, we've got to improve people's health. Mm. And you don't do that by, by rubbish food, you know, sugars, etc. Mm. So we're heading to the point where um, my time's going to be up in here. And, and I didn't bring a beer down because I thought you'd be, you know, you had a fairly tight line. And uh, you said, uh, well, what beer are we doing? And uh, uh, luckily, you had a stock, didn't you? Well, actually, I lost the keys to the cellar for two months during lockdown. <laughs> uh, which was uh, which was quite serious. Was it you who lost it? It was me who lost oh, them. Yeah, yeah we, uh, that is very serious. 
But I do have something, and, and um, obviously I listen to your program uh, from time to time, and there's lots of weird and wonderful beers, and quite often uh, the um, jury is not sort of giving well, too many points. The girls buy lots of the beers, which is very kind of them, but they're, they're always trendy, you know, and, and when you're an old codge like me, it's like, right, okay, this is a nice orange can. When you've spent a lifetime drinking Norfolk beers, you know, Woodford's, or Suffolk beers, Adams, or the local brews. You know, you kind of get used to that's the dynamic that you go for. And so we've actually not covered some of the very basic, obvious beers that we have in our armory. You know, I actually, I drink a lot of uh, Teddy Morph's beers and Malt Coast Brewery, which I think those three different ales they do are excellent, but I've run out of them, and um, I have now found the keys to the cellar. And, and of course, my 17-year-old son, I shouldn't say that, 18-year-old, he is actually 17. But anyway, he, I'm sure he drinks the... He the, is, loves Ghost Ship. And yeah. I think, well, I know that Ghost Ship has uh, become Adnams's most popular Absolutely, ale, yeah. Um, or beer. This is a good one. You're going to open it up. We always, open it we up always, and, and I know you have sort of webby talking about... Yeah, we, we criticise people for bad pouring. Yeah. yeah. So. There we go. I've also brought the um, alcohol-free one, which is their... Uh, That's the one your son, son drinks, I expect. Of course, yeah. <laughs> So we, we have Ghost Chip, which is the, well, I mean, the, the home bet Adnams beer is their Southwold Bitter. It's a, a session beer. This one's slightly stronger, but it is by a long shot their most popular beer. It's a citrus pale ale, and it's 4.5%. It is, well, it is a very popular and very lovely beer. Yeah, I'd say it's one of my favourite beers now. It's got your ingredients. Well, yes, that's... Yeah, that hits the spot every time. Yeah. And it's quite funny because pale ale went out of popularity. It's only just come back in in the last sort of... Listen, when I was a lad, you'd go to the pub and there'd be a bloke with a trilby hat, a beard, a pipe and lots of smoke around him and he'd be drinking real ale. Mm. And you go in there as a teenager and think, silly old, he's how out of touch is he? And, you know, 40 years later, there's young blokes with trilbies, beards and vape things with loads of smoke around them Mm. drinking real ale. Yeah. So it's just, it's all been done before. (laughs) Yeah. And we used to, years ago, with Dad... When we were farming at Burnham Norton, he would um, take down a, uh, a crate of um, Green King IPA. Mm-hmm. There's little bottles, and the men would all have some on the farm or harvest. Now, of course, we don't do that because of you know drinking and driving and big tractors and what have you. No, absolutely. Uh, yeah, have a beer at the end of the day or so uh, during harvest. Well, we, we had a, actually at last week at Elsham, we got a barrel. Which um, which kept the three traders going for about two hours. No, we yeah. we got a barrel in because at the end of um, at the end of the week's trading and, and intake, about somewhere seven or eight o'clock at night on Friday, we decided you can't go to the pub anymore, and it'd be handy. And there's a number of people who come in and out and keep bringing samples, and we actually it was a really really big success. We ran it for sort of three days, and yeah, it worked. So we're we're taking to taking barrels in at Aylesham. We're now going to have a little glass of the alcohol-free one, which when I went round the brewery in Suffolk, they uh, explained their process of, of you know, extracting the alcohol. And I think this is, I mean, you know, those, those, those early days of, uh, what were they, sort of... Um, oh, the, the non-alcoholic beers. Oh, they're something. absolutely filthy. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think this is, is perfectly word. acceptable. Now, this tastes like ghost ship. Yeah, yeah this is a non-alcoholic, same, same drink. It's the citrus aspect. There's the hops there, there's the barley, there's the, the malting, and then there's the citrus addition. It does, it does taste different, but it isn't very far off, is it? No, it, you're right. It clearly doesn't taste as good as the 4.5% real deal. But, you know, if you are going to the pub to meet friends or take friends to the pub and you're the designated driver, it's better than drinking a Coke. 
It's been a pleasure coming up here and you getting me a beer as well, Tom. So you know, I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Andrew, yeah, thank you. Well, um, I'm glad I finally made it onto the show. <laughs> uh, I'll pay a compliment. You are the first podcast. I'm a sort of slight technophobe. Yeah. And I didn't think I'd be able to work podcasts, but of course it's remarkably easy. Yeah, you looked uh, at me and thought, yeah, if he can. Yeah, <laughs> and well, no, and, and so I do listen to it. Uh, but I, and I, always, I always say, I've got to, if I do get on his programme, I've got to correct his grammar. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah, go on. Because you always say, these at the beginning, these are, these thoughts. Any decision to trade, any decision to trade. Is yours alone. Is yours. Not, and shouldn't be based on these thoughts. Um, Something like that. And then you then, and these is, is plural, and then you start with a, a, a singular. I, it, I, it is your decision to trade. I altered it. Did you? Yeah, I talk much slower. Okay. So I think any any decision to trade is yours, is what I say. I think. <laughs> Good. And there is no these in there, I believe. Yeah, yeah. But if I, I'm happy to be corrected again. No. I, I listened. When you, when you corrected me in January, and I said, well, you come on the podcast. The, the reason you haven't been on before as well is because COVID's occurred, because we had that conversation. Yeah, well, you've had January. to do a few with your sons, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> My wife, that was even more dangerous. Oh, I haven't listened to your wife. <laughs> Good job, too. Yeah, that was, no, that went, it took about three seconds for her to say, that was very annoying, which, <laughs> which leads to other things we did. We did an impression of, of a farmer's wife once where, because it's just us all talking amongst ourselves, you slip off the, the kind of very grown-up stage and you end up, well, we ended up getting in trouble with a few farmer's wives with the impression I did. So, yeah, I'm still fighting that one. <laughs> Anyway, thank you very much for coming on and, uh, you know, we'll get you back another day maybe. Yeah, well, 200 if we're both still alive. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. Okay, bye, Andrew. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they're released. Dew and Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, We can supply you with the best strategies to help you achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Call now on 01263 731 550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk or follow us on Twitter. We are at dewinggrain. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by Tinshed Productions in conjunction with East Coast Design Studio.